This is Schoon TV, live from Detroit, the Motor City, with a very special guest and friend, the Honorable Coleman Alexander Young II. Hey, Coleman, how are you? Man, it's good to be with you, man. It's been, I've, been, I've been waiting for this moment for a long time, so it's good to be here. You and me both, man. Um, I, I want you to tell the people watching, who is Coleman Alexander Young II? Well, Coleman Alexander Young II is a young man who was a state rep. I was a state senator. Um, I was a person who was the son of the greatest man on earth, the Honorable Coleman Alexander Young. And my mother is Ann Ivory Calvert, uh, someone who was a trendsetter in her own right, uh, was the first uh, African-American public works director in the city of Fontana, California. She uh, ran the garage. Um, she also was responsible for building the Greater Resource Recovery, um, the Greater Resource Recovery Authority uh, over there, or they call it Gidra, as it's known. Mm -hmm. um, so I come from a family of innovators, but I also come from a family of public servants, people who are willing to give the shirt off their back so that people who don't have any can have more. And uh, people who taught me that power is only important as an instrument to serve the powerless with it. And so I just feel that's really who I am. And that's what my guiding principle throughout my career. Uh, I think that's what led me to uh, appropriate over $800 million uh, to the state of Michigan and the city of Detroit um, from the federal government. From, from, my, from my position as a state legislator, I think that's what allowed me to pass 13 laws. I think that's what allowed me to pass historic civil rights legislation, uh, making sure that women receive paid leave uh, when they become pregnant, both in public and private sectors. I think energy cost recovery. I think these are some of the things that really led me those principles, that that guiding the foundation, that guiding light has led me to where I'm at now. So I think that's why I am overall in a nutshell. It's just somebody who wants to just be hope for the hopeless and a voice for the voiceless. How old were you when you were first elected? I was 23 years old. 23. 23 years old. I think I was like one of the youngest to be elected. I wasn't the youngest, but I was like up there. Right. Yeah. And what did it feel like to be 23 and being elected? I felt like I was 10 feet tall and bulletproof. You know so, what I'm saying? Like it, felt, it, it, felt, it felt phenomenal till I like walked into the room mm -hmm. and we were actually talking about like passing laws and passing legislation. And like when we get in there, you know, I, I, nobody could tell me nothing. Got the wind to my back. I'm walking into that caucus room. And the first thing they started talking about was whether or not they were going to take the water department away from the citizens of Detroit, which was something that my father was just deaf against. And a lot of people were opposed. And that was like my first introduction into Lansing. It's like um, Teola Hunter, who was a legendary state lawmaker, really said it best. She said there's three parties in Lansing. She said there's the Democratic Party, there's the Republican Party, and there's the city of Detroit. I found that out real quick. Okay. You know, um, as at 23, were you intimidated in any way? No, I mean not not I mean at first, you know, not really I was more excited than anything else. You know what I'm saying? I was excited to get out there, eager to get out there. You know, I had some growing pains, mm -hmm. you know, made you know, made some little mistakes and got some bumps along the way. Um, but uh it was but it was pretty good. You know, it, it made me stronger, it made me better. Um, I wasn't so much scared as I was just really excited to be there and really excited to get things done. But as I kind of learned the process and learned how things are and learned how things are going, I realized why things kind of are the way that they are in these urban communities, not just the city of Detroit, but across the country right now. And I think it's just a real, I think that you can't have a race neutral agenda in a race specific reality. You know what I mean? And, and, and what I mean by that is, I feel that a lot of times we have policies that were always sure to make sure that it was race neutral, that it wasn't something that would directly affect one group or another group. And I think that after 250 years of slavery, and over 100 years of Jim Crow, drug war, convict leasing, um, benign neglect, I really felt that there were, should be laws that should be more specific to not just Detroiters, but also to black folks in this town that we really just didn't really get to that would affect them in a real way. And every time you try to do something for Detroit, it was it was always like people there was a hesitancy, there was a there was a resistance. 
You know what I mean? Some some of it was more benign, but a lot of it was more clear and in your face. And all. some was covert, some more, some was overt. And a lot of that just came from the race issue that we never really dealt with. You know, you, you're taking me in a place that I wanted to come to later, but we're going to circle back. Okay. Right now, I'm going to finish with what you're talking about because the history of Detroit is such that um, this town has, has been an industrial town. Mm-hmm. Henry Ford made his name in, mm-hmm. in this area. Mm-hmm. Um, the Ford Foundation is still here. Huge. Huge. And General they created Rogers. a lot of lot of opportunities. Chrysler the plan the street. And, and when you say race neutral, is it really race neutral? Because in my readings and research, when black migrants came to this town seeking jobs, they they moved to the east side of Detroit, settled on Hastings over there in uh, Black Bottom, and at some point. The interstate I-75 was built, mm-hmm. and it displaced a lot of those places, mm-hmm. and it killed an economic, thriving mm-hmm. neighborhood mm-hmm. of black businesses. Black bottom. And, and 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 not only that, from from talking to people around here, I was informed that I-75 was also the beginning of the car manufacturers moving plants to the suburbs. Mm-hmm. So, and th- th- this was going on when? In the 40s? The yeah, 50s? it was going on in the 40s. So, they, so first of all, like in the 40s, you had, um, after people coming back from World War II, mm-hmm. you had the suburbanization of America. So people were already leaving the city of Detroit at that point in time. Then in the 50s, in 1956, you had um, Dwight Eisenhower who came up with the highway plan. And so they built freeways through thriving black businesses and communities all throughout the country. Detroit and Black Bottom was one of them. That was a thriving place that they built freeways through that. And so that was something that really happened. Then in the 70s, you had something called benign neglect. So it's, we're going to solve a problem by ignoring it. And what we're going to do is we're going to take focus off of racial equity policies and we're going to focus more on other people other than African Americans, other groups of people other than African Americans. They felt that people who had been talking about race was getting too much attention and we feel that we could get progress for black people without talking about it, which is like taking a shower without using water. Like it just, it doesn't make sense. You know what I'm saying? And so this is something that was happening in the 70s. And as a result of that, plus you had the disinvestment of a lot of people here locally in the plants that were leaving the city, the deindustrialization of a lot of these cities. And also on top of the uh, deindustrialization of a lot of these cities and communities, you also had um, the uprising that took place in 67. Mm-hmm. So you had the uprising in the city of Detroit that took place that was because of police brutality over there at 12th and Claremont over a blind pig. And so as a result, you had white flight that was leaving because of that. And also, I forgot to say, in the uh, in the benign neglect policy, you also had something called municipal disinvestment. So you had people that were making decisions to disinvest in a lot of these communities. In the 60s, they had something called like the Office of Economic Opportunity, and they decided to, and they were at first, they had the federal government that was setting up offices in these major cities to invest in their communities. They decided to pull back on that in the 70s, and they were going to um, allow the local units of government to have that, but they didn't have the money to fund it. Then on top of that, in 71, you also had the war on drugs, which was targeted specifically towards people of color and African Americans particularly. So there's a guy who was in the Nixon administration. His name is John Irwin. He's like his head, one of his head, like a chief advisor. He says, we have a problem in this country. <coughs> It's called the hippies and the Negroes. Now, we can't lock them up because they're hippies and Negroes. Wait, is that? You hear that? Yeah, that's your phone. Is that my Just phone? Just turn it off, please. Yeah. So, um, you had a policy that says that we can't get rid of them because they're hippies and Negroes, but we can lock them up for marijuana and uh, cocaine. So, we, have a lot, we criminalize both heavily. 
and we associate them, we associate hippies with marijuana and black people or Negroes, as they call them, with cocaine. And that way we can surveil their meetings, we can vilify them in the nightly news, and we can lock them up. Did we know that the war on drugs was a lie? Of course we did. And so these are things that were happening in the black community at these particular times, well, which contributed to where we are now. Well, there's some interesting things I want to um, raise. Let's go back to the 40s and 50s. Why do you think the car manufacturers wanted to move the jobs and plants outside of the city to the suburbs? Well, I think, like you said earlier, because the freeway system that they were building, because the fact that you have the suburbanization of America where more people were moving away from the cities. Um, I also think it was because the competition that you had for people coming back from World War II that were competing with people for those jobs in those areas. And so a lot of folks decided they were just gonna move out into the suburbs. And so that's what they did. So do you think the... It exploded though, like, it really exploded. It really took off like in the 60s. Like it really took off like in the not. Like after 1967. We're we going to work our way okay, up. Okay, I'm, I'm going to do it in That's chronological order. Really explode, you know, yeah. so I, I, what I'm trying to get at is what was the incentive for car manufacturers to leave? Was it was it tax breaks in the suburbs? Was it they don't want to deal with black people? What, what, I what think was it was like, at that time, I think it was all the above. You know what I'm saying? I think it was the fact that you had people who just didn't want to live in the cities at that time where black people were at because of the great migration. Because you had black folks that were leaving the South and coming to the going to the North for jobs. Mm -hmm. And so they were competing with people who were white for jobs. And also it was because of the fact that um, you just had a lot of people who didn't want to work because of racism as well. Now, um, the population in Detroit peaked around 1950 with 1.85 million people. Yeah. Today the population is currently about 600,000. 600,000. 600, yeah. The Detroit population decreased by 200,000 just in the first decade mm -hmm. of this century. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of people attribute the the decline in population in the city to your father being mayor. Sure. And which is why I wanted to discuss that people were leaving long before he became mayor. Right. And and, and you know, um your father became he got elected in nineteen seventy three, correct? Right. And he was the first black mayor of this city. Absolutely. And he held that office for four five unprecedented Terms, mm -hmm. correct. Twenty years. Twenty years. So nineteen ninety three was his last year. Yeah. Okay. I was reading a book called um, "Our Kind of People," and the author was Lawrence Graham, and he has a whole chapter on Detroit. And I found something interesting that I didn't know. He said that in nineteen seventy three, the city government, the city of Detroit only did $30,000 in business with black businesses. Mm -hmm. And that was the year your father got elected. Mm -hmm. And in 1993, his last year, the city of Detroit did $200 million with black businesses. Mm -hmm. So, a lot of those people who say that your father was so bad for the city, do you think it's possible that it's because they missed out on that $200 million? Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure there's people who, you know, are bitter and people who are upset about that. But I, I, listen, this is also what I think. I think that when my father got elected, right, right after he got elected, the city, when he got elected, it was about 50-50 split. You had people who were leaving the city in 1967 after the 1967 rebellion. So you had folks that were going on all across the country, and you know, and you, it played places all across the country. Yeah, after Dr. And, King in '68, right, right, you right, guys right. had it in '67 and '68. Yeah, 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 right. You're right, two years right, in a row. Right, yeah, right, okay. Yeah, you've, you've heard the curve. That's right. So you had that when he got elected. That's when you had white flight significantly take place because of that. Um, part of that was because of a quote that was taken out of context. 
So my father got elected basically told people, I don't care if you wear super fly suits, you wear badges, if you a crook and you're not about helping people in Detroit, you can hit eight mile road. Hit eight mile. And you I had remember. people who were Caucasian who took that if he wanted white people, he was sick. But that's not what he said, it's not what he meant. But that's how it's taken. And so a lot of people decided that's where Vice Flight came from. And you also had a lot of people that were in the suburbs that were more um that were more Caucasian and more white, that were benefiting from black for white people who are leaving and going to those suburbs, and then black folks who are leaving and going to those suburbs because of the fight, because of the tax budget. Because anytime you're a city mm-hmm. that is a million, a million point eight, eight, a million point eight five, like you said earlier, mm-hmm. and you're gonna go all the way down to now six hundred thousand people, that's gonna hurt your tax base. Yeah, there's, there's a lot anytime. of money. There's a lot of money in Michigan, and there's a lot of money generated in Detroit. I also saw a, a statistic that seventy one percent of the employees, excuse me, of the employees in Detroit live outside Detroit. Yeah. And you're no longer elected official, but as a politician, how do you feel about that? Well, I mean, I feel it's terrible. I mean, I feel the fact that you have people who, a lot, like you said, a lot of that's due to white flight. A lot of that's due to people who left the city and moved out in the suburbs. But you have a lot of jobs that are still here. You have the downtowns that are still here. You have Rock Financial. You have General Motors downtown. You have Chrysler. You have Ford. We got that Chrysler plant they're building over there. You know what I mean? So you have a lot of jobs that are still here. So people will work here, but they'll go live somewhere else. And the ingress and egress of people coming here to work and then leaving and going to the suburbs is is a significant problem. Is, can anything be done about it? Can people be incentivized to stay in the city? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think you just, well, I think that's starting to happen now. You started to see people wanting to come back. I think for a long time, the finances, we didn't have the finances necessary to be able to provide the services that people need. So police, fire, emergency services personnel, those were things that we were lacking because of the population decline, because of the population of, of the tax dollars that we were losing that were leaving the city on a normal day basis. We weren't able to provide those services. And now we're starting to do that. Now we're starting to we're starting to provide that in a we started to provide that better. Now we went through bankruptcy, so a lot of the debt that we have, we had fourteen billion dollars debt. They wiped 14. 14 billion. Wiped I, I that thought debt. it was eighteen billion. No, 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 sorry, wait, what? No, you're right, what it was eighteen billion dollars. We wiped that down to seven. Mm-hmm. So yeah. You know, you're not going to really do anything with it. In most cities, they're funded through their property taxes. Okay? But Detroit makes the majority of its money from its income tax because our property taxes are so distressed. Now, part of that is naturally comes back to rates as well because they have something that Brookies calls the black tax. So you have a white neighborhood that's similar and a black neighborhood that's similar. Black people property are $48,000 less on average nationally. So that's where that comes from. One. But also because so many people have left, we have so many dilapidated buildings. Yes, the population has declined at such an incredible rate that we are that we have been where we are now. Basically, you have a city of six hundred thousand people trying to upkeep an infrastructure that's meant for one point eight five million, and that's really hard to do. You know what I mean? Without making sure that you have more people, so you have to repopulate the city. The city. I think the first thing we need to do is we need to have jobs. I think the second thing that we need to do is we also need to reach out to the kids that are here and train them up for the jobs that are available. And that's why I'm so glad that we're working with the Coleman Alexander Young II, um, the Coleman Alexander Young II Education Foundation, which provides education through science, technology, engineering, and math so that these kids can have the education that they need so that when they get these skills here, they can go work the jobs that are available downtown and they can stay in the city of Detroit and keep that tax base here. You know, and, and that's a perfect segue into bringing residents into the city. Yeah. A lot of people who don't understand civics, to rebuild the city requires more than jobs. It needs a solid school system. Right. So young families would want to raise their kids here. And, and um, I'm sure that's a reason why you wanted to do the STEM. Absolutely. What's the state of, of Detroit's public schools right now? Well, right now we have a 75% graduation rate. Um, we, we have a 23% dropout rate right now. Um, 
we had a 12.5% that graduated from college. I think we have 23% that go somewhere within that number. So on top of that, DPS also has, right now it's about $500 million in capital improvement debt. Just recently, they were able to, through inspections of the city, they were able to clean up some of them. They had mold, they found they had mold, found they had rats. You know, this is all Ellen a while ago. Uh, really unsanitary, unsafe conditions for children to be in. And because of a lot of things, one, I think the fact that we had something called the 1999 takeover, where we went from a $200 million surplus, no, we went to a $30 million surplus to a $200 million deficit. Um, the fact that they were making $30 million wire transfers in the middle of the night. Um, the fact that you had rampant theft that was going on and no one was really held accountable. Uh, there was an instance one time where you had a lunch lady who was literally stealing lunch money from children. I mean, they were talking about, you know, stealing computers, stealing TVs. I mean, it, it was bad. And so I think that from that, and then on top of that, you have charter schools that will come in. And you're having some good charter schools. Don't get me wrong. You know, you have like the Thompson School. That's a really good charter school. You have other schools, like University Prep, that are really good schools. But for the most part, you know, um, the charter schools are not performing any better than the public schools are. And what happens is you have them, you have a lot of these kids who want to go to these charter schools because they are just cleaner and have better, you know, conditions. Mm -hmm. And so they go over there. The month they wait till after you know, they wait till after count day after they receive their money, the charter school, and then they decide. Well, you know what? They'll tell the little John, the little Jane. You know, this isn't working out for us, and they will kick that child out the school. You know, saying, and then they'll send them over to the public school. And they don't have the same level of special needs children in charter schools that they have in the public schools. So they got a tougher job in the yes, public schools. Yes, they got tougher. They got well, the, the, the charter, the public schools got a tougher That's job. That's what I mean. Yeah, yeah. The, the charter schools, absolutely. And so I think that has been the that has been the battle for a very long time. So I mean, I don't want to say market share because we don't want to look at kids like that. But if you look in terms of you know the amount of students that are in public school, we only have 46, 47,000 students that are in public schools right now. Most of the kids in Detroit either go to charter schools and go to schools outside the city. Wow. Yeah. So it's not that Detroit can't be better. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not, I'm not saying that it's not that the DPS is trying. You know, or they're not doing it. Let me just say this real quick too. So they had two things. They had old co and new co, right? Old co is where all the debt and all the bad debt and all the toxic debt. We're gonna put that. In. The same thing they did. With um, General Motors, right? You know what I'm saying? When they with their restructuring plan, same thing. They bankruptcy, same thing they doing now with uh, with DPS. So we're gonna put all the debt, all the old debt that we don't want. We put it in old company, and then new company is gonna be a new company that's gonna be clean. It's gonna be educate children and things of that nature, right? But when you have so much of your money that's going to pay off debt rather than educate kids in the classroom, you know what I mean? Because a lot of money that's supposed to go towards per per pupil funding, so the per child funding that they get for DPS goes to paying off debt that was borrowed from previous emergency managers that came in the door. You don't get around to that, right? Mm -hmm. You know, so you understand what I'm saying to you. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of hard for you to be able to educate kids with all the resources that you have going to pay off debt. You got to forgive that debt at some point in time. Because a lot of it, DPS did not create itself anyway. Got you. Now. You started as a state rep. Yeah. You did one term as a state rep. I did two terms as a state rep, and I did two terms as a state senator. Okay. Yep. So you maxed out on both. No, no, no. I no, I had one more term as a state rep, but I didn't take it. I forwent that term and run for senator. And you won. Yep. And you won all of those elections the first time you tried. Yeah, State I ran, rep and senator. Yep. Okay. Now, what were you in the state rep or the senate when you tried to help the public school system in Detroit? I was I was in both, so I tried to help them in when I was in the state rep spot. And I tried to help them when I was in the state senate spot. Now look, when we was in the state rep spot, I was in the majority. Democrats were in the majority in the house, mm -hmm. so I was in a completely different position. We were able to provide more money 
be able to provide a little bit more opportunities. But like I said, again, it's those three party system you know, between Democrats and Republicans in the city of Detroit. So but the, the, that what that means is that representatives from Detroit are seen as their own entity. Right. We, right well, basically, what that means is we're treated differently. Different. That, that's for the, right. For the rest of everybody else. And why is that? Even though the Democrats treat you guys like I, that? I, I, I felt that. I this is what I felt. I mm-hmm. felt that there was a. I don't know if because I want to say more implicit bias, but I just felt like there was a hesitancy to really do what was necessary for Detroit. It seemed like every time it came for us, whether it be that or whether it be insurance, we eventually passed some things on our insurance. Eventually, but it died. It, it, it died. It died in the Republican-controlled city at that time. But yeah, it, it always seemed like there was a little bit of an extra lift that I had to carry, a little bit of an extra load, a little, little bit more explaining that I had to do different other issues. And I'm not knocking other communities. I'm not knocking other people. Everybody has their own issues. Everybody has their own needs. But it, but for the city of Detroit, particularly, well, you're for, speaking for your constituents. For black That's folks, your job. It just seems like he was always running uphill. And. Were there any specific oh, bills, any specific bills in the Senate that you tried to to get pushed through to help the the DPS? Yeah, yeah, there was a, there was a, there, were, there were a couple bills. I think there was one bill that I tried to get through in terms of wiping out the debt that didn't really go anywhere. There was another bill that I tried to push uh, when I was a senator in terms of um, in terms of paying off the debt to DPS outright. And uh, and that and that bill failed, so that was an amendment that I had that I offered for the appropriation process, and they voted that down. So yeah, there there, there were a lot of things that we tried to do. Now DPS is a different position than than it was when I got in the mind, when I got in the city. You know what I mean? When I got in the city, that's when it kind of really started going a certain way. But um, now. The other thing is we were talking about rebuilding the city. Schools are important. Right. But in Detroit, in particular, Detroit has had the most expensive auto insurance in the country. Right. Now, you know more about this than me, but from what I gather, it has a lot to do with PIP or... Yeah, PIP. Pip choice. That's right. And, and, and the insurance. Personal injury protection. It, that's right. It, it explained to me that Detroit drivers were forced to buy an entirely new health insurance plan. Right. That gave them unlimited coverage. Right. And because of that, the the rates are highest. Right. Well, unlimited coverage and the fact that um we didn't have prior approval. That means that in some states that where you, where you have it, the insurance company had to give you prior approval before you can raise the rate. Mm-hmm. The insurance company didn't have that. The insurance companies could also use something called uh, your credit score. So things that have nothing to do with your driving rate, nothing to do with your driving to affect and determine your rate. Um, also, I feel a lot of times there were insurance companies that just flat out were denying that for when I'm here paying certain um, healthcare providers if you will, in terms of the money that they need to be able to get started, they were flat out denying or flat out not paying or hesitant on paying uh, claims that they had. But but um, unlimited health insurance is one of those things. But we also not only had unlimited insurance, we also paid into a fund called the Michigan Catastrophic Claims Association. That's what that's one of the things that's different compared to the rest of the country as well. That we really don't talk about was that we had a Michigan Catastrophic Claims Association where everybody that had license had to pay. You know, I think it was like one hundred, like one hundred eighty-five dollars now, somewhere around there. The people that had to pay into it that would go up every couple years, right? And so, it, so that's what they were saying. It was because of the unlimited health care that they had to provide, and that if the insurance companies would have a cap in terms of how much you had to pay, and it would be a choice. You can still get now. You can still get unlimited health care, right? That, it's not really a limited health care. It's just, it's just health care for as much as you need, really. It's insurance for as much as you need to get, right? So if you could get that, then you could also, um, it's, so if you get that, you can also go to lower coverage. So if I want to go, let's say, to like 300000 
or two hundred thousand, or go down to fifty thousand. Depending on how low your coverage is, it changes your and how much rates you're supposed to set. Mm -hmm. But they were supposed to stop using zip codes. You know what I mean? But and they stopped that. But now they can use they can use a city. Now they can use you know other territorial areas. So it really didn't change per se. And they're saying that auto insurance rates still might be higher than it is in the suburbs. It's never going to be the same because you go ahead, you got more cars on the train. You, you they know, were saying it was because of crime, but auto theft numbers were constantly going down every other year. Is this another example of race neutral policy? I, I think so. I, I just really think so. I think the fact that you had a whole lot of folks who were too expensive to be able to insure from their point of view, and they just decided we're going to raise these rates to this amount, and they're still talking about, I'm not saying this is something that's going to happen, there's no real evidence of that yet, we don't know, and so I would encourage people to shop around, talk to your insurance agent, you know, if you're in this, if you live in the city of Detroit, to see if you can save money, to see if you can be able to get more money, but yeah, I definitely think there's a little more. It, it, I saw some fantastic numbers that Detroit residents were paying upwards of two to three times right. what the closest person, closest state rate was. We was averaging at one point in time, we were averaging like, I think, over $5,000 a year yeah. on average. There was no, the only, the closest state was like 2000 Yeah, I, I saw something Yeah, similar. like there was, there was nothing, close, I think it was like 5000 or oh, $5,600 or something like that. So the jobs, the jobs started leaving in the forties. Yeah, um, but that didn't happen. Like the insurance didn't happen. Like I, I know, but yeah. I, I'm developing a timeline okay. here to draw okay. a bigger picture. Okay. The jobs started leaving in the forties. Gonna draw it all out. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah, because yeah. it's a lot of information, and you know people got short attention span. Yeah. So we got to bring it all back yeah. for. So the jobs started leaving in the forties, and um, and white residents started leaving in the fifties. And then there was a riot, a major riot in 67 that, that exacerbated the, the departures of white residents. Right. And then your father got elected in 73. Right. And um, white people started leaving more after that. Right. With the jobs leaving, and, and of course, we can't forget the OPEC crisis of the 70s, which, which affected the auto industry. Because now they started pushing smaller cars that were coming out of Japan and places like that. Right. Then the school crisis. So Detroit has been getting beat like a piñata. Yeah. For decade after decade. That's a good way to put it. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, that, that, yeah. see, every time I hear it, it just seemed like like the stepchild. Yeah, one thing after one another. One thing after another. You know, like you said, in the 40s, they had more opportunities out there. You had the federal housing district that was building more houses out there. And that led to the suburbanization of America. That's why you had so many people that were leaving and going out there because they had houses that were abundant. You know, you were now, um, you are now, you know, the, the um, it's going to come to me, the, um, uh, with the Roosevelt administration, the New Deal, the New Deal policies. Mm -hmm. And those policies were being able to help people be able to get jobs and opportunities through work progress administration and things of that nature. You had veterans that are coming back home in the 40s. And then once that happened, you had people qualifying for Social Security as well. So you had people who were looking to be able to buy houses that were insured by the federal government. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's one of the reasons why you had the suburbanization in America. Because you had the building of the freeways in the 50s. And oh. they, built through, they built through Black Bottom and other places across the country, black thriving areas. And they had to be able to drive from the island cities into suburbia. You know what I'm saying? Be able to live in those houses, have the white picket fence, have the two, you know, the three kids and the 2.5 dogs or whatever. You had that going on in the 50s. You know, then in the 60s, you had the, you know, you had the issue of uh, civil rights. You know, you had the issue of Dr. Martin Luther King and Malcolm X. You had the civil rights laws that were passed in the 60s. Mm -hmm. um, then you had the uprising in 67. And then, you had, and then you had the uprising in 68 after he passed away. You started having more white flight. You went to the 70s. You had benign neglect. And you had uh, the drug war that took place at that same time. 
And so that's kind of what Detroit is going through. But what makes Detroit so different is that from the 70s when my father got elected, you had that pocket, you had the 67 uprising, you had the, you had the 68 issue as well, and then you had my father got elected right when it was 50-50 with the population, like maybe like 48-50 for white, 46 black, right on the cusp when he got elected. And when my father got elected, my father was a man who didn't take any wooden nickels and called it like he saw it. And a lot of people had problems with that. Yeah. He, was what you, he was what you would call a race man at that time. And so I think, but like you said earlier, I mean, you set a record in terms of contracts for African-American people. He diversified the workplace, which is still a legacy to this day in terms of minority hirees in the city of Detroit. He also was one of the first people to come up with the um, um, with a civilian oversight with the police, the board of police commissioners, as well. In this, this back in the seventies, you got you got police departments now, police brutality that still talking you know, about doing that. I haven't looked this up, and maybe you can help me with it. But someone had um, told me that a cop had killed someone in Detroit, and it was. It was it was controversial. Yeah. And your father had had him fired immediately. Yeah. Tell tell tell. Um, so you talk about Malice Green. So basically, Malice Green was a man who beat. I forgot. I think I forgot the names of the alters. It was Austin, Walter, Neville, then it was somebody else, Budson, and as someone else, Neville. I forgot their first names. But Walter, um, Malice Green was a man that was killed by police. In Detroit. In Detroit. In which decade was this? I think this was in the 80s, mm-hmm. if I'm not mistaken. This was about, no, no, I think this was in the 20s, if I'm not mistaken. So, yeah, it was a very controversial case at that particular time. And your father took, he, he got proactive and fired the police immediately, and it quelled any type of civil unrest that was uh, boiling up? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely, absolutely. He was the, he was the one that came out immediately and said that they murdered this man. They killed this man, absolutely. And so I think that, but, but, but look, with my father, you gotta go back to like when in the 60s, they had something called, uh, well not even before, they had something called Stop the Robberies in Joy St. Streets. Mm-hmm. And they had something called The Big Four. And these were police units that were brutalizing Detroit. You know what I'm saying? That we're going out there. My father used to say police officers would shoot over black kids' heads for fun. So this is what was going on in the city at that time. And when he you ran, know, there are people who would think that's an exaggeration, yeah, right? Yeah, no, yeah, they would say that. Mm-hmm. They would say that. But this was a guy who, but the 40s was different. Of course, of course, uh, yeah. and, and a lot of people can't even time. understand that right. because they look at things in the con in the context of what right. they see. These are different times. Then now it's more institutional and structural and cultural. It was blatant back, back then. Back yeah. then it was more overt in your so, face. What, what, what I want—that's what the order of police what, commissioners came from. What I want white viewers to understand is that, regardless of if they agree with some of the things said, they need to know there's a basis for these sentiments. Whether you think right. it's accurate or not, it's not coming from nowhere. Right. It's coming from somewhere. Right. And, and speaking of which, I think it's important for a lot of people to know, your father fought in World War II, did he yes, not? Yes, he did. Tuskegee Airmen. That's right. Tuskegee Airmen. A lot of people don't know that. He, he wasn't just somebody that uh, became a bureaucrat Right. And lived off the city dole or whatever right. like they say. You know, uh, this is a man who fought for his country. Right. Was a hero. Right. Historical. Stood up to the House of Un-American Activities Committee. Um, stood up to McCarthyism, which was raging at that particular time. Um, I think it, it was unheard of to see a black man talk and, to people and, like and, that. And, like a, authority. and a lot of people don't get it because your father was born in 1918. Right. So, because we may not do or say the things that he did or say the way he did it, because our experiences are different. He was molded in a time that black people weren't treated very well in this country. No. So, if, if he turned out a certain way, 
you, you know, if, if his attitude towards society is framed by the way he was treated, you can't hold him responsible for that. No. You know? Yeah. And, and I think there's a lot of black people who will say to this day, you have black people who are being mistreated. To this day. It may not be the same. Yeah. It may not be the same way. It may not be the, 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 the same style or the same program. But I think there's a lot of people who can relate to what he's going through. There's a lot of people who can understand and be empathetic and sympathetic to what he's going through. And, 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 and honor and revere what he did and what he's done for this city and for this yeah. country. Yes, his name looms large over this city to Absolutely. this day. And he passed in 1997. That's correct? right. So that's 23 years ago. That's right. And they talk about him. I mean, I've walked down the street with you. And they, they respect you in your own right, man. Right. But your father's name looms large over this city. Um, that day like it was yesterday. When you when you ran for mayor, yeah, right, yeah. Now remember, we've already said that when your father got elected, the city only did thirty thousand dollars in business right. with black businesses. Right. And his last year in office, they did two hundred million. So there was a lot of black people. That made money. Made a lot of money. A lot of money. Have any of those people ever reached out to you to help you in any way in your campaigns not or anything? That, not for that. Not for not for that race. No. Yeah. You, not, you, not for you, your mayoral not race. Not for race. No. Okay. You want to hold out hope. Yeah. In the future. Yeah. That you can convince people so to not, come around. None of these people. No. None of these people. No. And, and a lot of people maybe, got maybe rich except, over that. Um, maybe except uh, Mr. Haygood, Henry Haygood, did mm -hmm. reach out to me, but nobody really else. I, 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 you know, and this is on me. This is not you, but I was appalled by one person, a woman, who said to the media at a news conference that if your father was alive, he would endorse the person you was running against. Yeah. Yeah, dug, dug him up from the grave and said that. Yeah, that was unfortunate. And and you know when I heard that, it it, it was infuriating. It you should have been. Saying? It was it was it was beyond. It should have been. It changed the whole dynamic of the race. It you, changed my tenure. It changed my posture. It changed. I mean, now I look back on it. You know what I'm saying? And I think you know. What I think it's what it was. It's ridiculous and absurd. You know what I'm saying? That's why we need mental health facilities in this country and investment. How, how, you know, but how, how old were you when you were running for mayor? When I was running for mayor, it was about, 30, about 36, 36, no. 35. No, 35, 35. 30, no, I'm, I'm thinking about the other race. 35. 35. 35. Yeah. You were 35 years 35. old. You were running for mayor. Yep. And your father's a man who did so much for this town, people mm -hmm. in this town. And, and you are trying to walk in his footsteps Absolutely. politically. Absolutely. And you're trying your best to do things. And you've done a lot because I don't know too many guys, especially black guys, who get elected at 23 years old yeah, and serve for 16 years as a legislator. And they're only 38 years old. Yeah, I, I, don't, I think you're doing phenomenal. For somebody to see you making those strides and to say something like that, it's, it's, it's I, I just think it, it's, it's disgusting. It's, well, the fact that you're going to disrespect his ancestor and then you're going to dig my father up but, in the grave and do it. I mean, look, at, look. at some point in time, as a man, you got to let things go. You got to forgive and move on. Because, like, you know, being bitter towards somebody, I think somebody once said, I think, look, I think it was MC Surgeon said, it's like, drinking, it's like drinking a cup of poison every day and expecting the other guy to die. Look, you're a better man than me. But, because to me, what, what that... At the time? What that woman it did... It was fighting words. What that woman did, it, it epitomizes the level of bootlicking in this city. That, that's how I see it. And I, you're a good guy, but I'm not forgetting and I, I'm saying it on ain't, camera. Ain't, I, he ain't forgetting or forgiving. That's he right. I ain't forgetting or forgiving because nah. that was on call for. Yeah, he he, he going to turn the cheek to turn around uh, and slap him uh, on the other side. <laughs> a, lot, a lot of people stood by and said nothing. Nobody even corrected yeah, him or nah, anything. You nah. know, and, and that's just wrong. But, but that's so, but that, but look, that's so important. But you, but, you, but you know what I believe? I believe this. Look, in every seat of adversity is an equal and great advantage. Mm -hmm. So, no. that So, yeah, that was said and that was disgusting. But now I'm out here helping kids. Yes, you are. I'm out here with a foundation. I'm out here investing in King. 
You know what I'm saying? I'm with you. We out here doing big things. You know, all this stuff is happening for a reason. Yes, yes, yes. All this stuff happens for a reason. In the end, we gonna be blessed. You know, they they say you gotta dig the deep ditch deeper so they can build the building higher. And so that's what we going through right now. But yeah, man, I, you know, with, at the time when I heard that, I bet I was furious. I I, I wanted to run through a brick wall at that time, man, mm-hmm. full speed. And it changed your tone and attitude in the race. And how you, yeah, yeah. How I look towards, uh, how I look towards my opponent. I ain't trying to name no names. How it looked towards everything just changed. Mm. Now, but I think but let, I'm better for it though. Yeah, and, that, and that's not, you, when you, you do stuff like that, it comes at a price. It comes at a cost. There, there's no way I believe. You know, I, you know, with, it was, I'm not trying to tell everybody what they believe, but I know with my my guys that I believe. There's no way you can do something like that and don't come at a cost. And people who hurt folks like that are hurting themselves. And that's really what that shows in the end. You know, um, that's why it's so Coleman, I see in you a young man who's trying to do what he can for his people. Yeah. Serving the people comes natural to you. You did it as a politician. Now you're in the private sector and you're doing it of your own accord and um I just think that's commendable, and I want people to really understand who you are. No matter, they may disagree with you on certain things that you say, certain positions that you hold, but make no doubt about it, your intentions are sincere and genuine, and that means a lot because that can't be said for too many people in this town, in government, yeah, not the people in the street. yeah. In government. Yeah. Now, speaking of which, um, Kwame Kilpatrick. Yeah. You were one of the people who thought he should have gotten arrested. Yeah, correct? I was one of the people who was like cheering for it to happen. Let's, let's not be clear. It was more than that. Like, I was one of the people who Okay. Why, why, why did you feel, what, what did he do wrong to the people? Well, listen, I just felt like at the time, you know, when you got swept up in what he was doing in terms of, I don't want to relitigate the whole case, because originally he got caught up for uh, perjury about um, having uh, relations mm-hmm. with uh, his chief of staff at the time, because he was married, he was having infidelity, and so I just got caught up with the whole thing about that, and you know, he's somebody in office who apparently is being a criminal and doing these other things. He got caught up with his other stuff afterwards. But I think whatever you agree or disagree with about Mayor Kilpatrick, 28 years is too long of a time. And I personally feel that what I did was wrong. And if I could do it all over again, I would say that he said this should not have been that long. And I don't want to play time fair because I'm not a judge here. But I definitely think that his sentence, I, I, I definitely think he should be I definitely think he should be part. He should be commuted, or he should be part. He should be let out. Uh, are any of the political figures in this city working to that effect? I think some are. You have some are, but a lot of people who just don't want to mention it because it's such a divisive topic. It's such a partisan topic. I just personally think right is right and wrong is wrong. Not, and, I, and I think that for you to get twenty eight years, there's folks who, who are murderers who have gotten that long. Yeah, I know. So, you know, come on. No. If you had gotten elected to Congress, because you ran for Congress yeah, as well. I did. Would you have advocated for, Absolutely. for Kwame in Congress? No question. Now, um, yesterday at the cookout, Brenda Jones. Yeah. Uh, the, she is the. She is the council president for the city of Detroit. And she's running for. Congress of the 13th district. That's Rashida Tlaib's yep. um, district. Now, you ran against Brenda. I did. Yeah, among other people. Yeah, I did. And, and Rashida I won. And brothers running. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, but you're... <laughs> Chopped up the vote. It did. But you, you've endorsed Brenda Jones. Yes. Yeah, I feel that she's the, I think that she's the best person right now for the job. I think in this incredible moment with uh, Brother George Floyd, lost his life in one of the most brutal ways you can imagine. You suffered to his last breath. We need somebody that's able to be able to speak to that and who's able to have a black agenda on how to address that. And I think that Brenda Jones fits that category. That, 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 that's good. That's interesting. 
Well, I know she, she thinks highly of you because she gave a hell of a speech yesterday she at did. the cookout. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Thank you. And, and we got it all on tape. Yeah, I know. <laughs> we got it all on video. Yeah, but um, going back to the insurance thing for a minute so people yeah. can understand the importance of insurance. Because of the high insurance rate, a lot of people insure their car outside of Detroit. Absolutely. They How? either don't have insurance, oh. about like 60%, or they, or they insure outside the city. They use our addresses outside the city for lower rates. Let, so when we deal with people who use addresses outside the city, do they forfeit their right to vote? It, yes. In some, case, in some cases, they do. Absolutely. Absolutely. So the insurance issue is actually affecting the outcome of elections. Oh yeah, it's affecting the outcome of elections, it's affecting the population, it also affects the outcome of elections, absolutely. So we may have more people living in Detroit than registered. Absolutely, absolutely. So absolutely. Th this insurance thing is, is major. It's a major thing, it's a, ma it's, it's, it's a major issue and it's been that way for a long time. Listen, we can't live in a world where we have auto insurance, where the auto insurance is more than the car note that you pay in. We just can't have that. I mean, you shouldn't be making life decisions every time you get your auto insurance bill. No one if, I gotta like, if I'm gonna have heat in the house, I'm gonna pay for auto insurance. If I'm gonna feed my kid today, I'm gonna pay for auto insurance. Because you gotta remember, it's a requirement. It's like, it's a misdemeanor if you don't have auto insurance. And you say 50 to 60% don't have yeah, it. Yeah, 60% don't or not insured. They do not. Carry auto insurance. So if you get in an accident in Detroit, you run it. Oh, you man. ain't sticking around because they ain't got the insurance. That's just, and that's unfortunate. That's just the reality. Now on the flip side, you gotta understand you got people who got less coverage now. So if you get into an accident, and that was the thing that they, that was different with the insurance was that with Detroit insurance, it was Detroit is going to take less. Insurance coverage, you're going to have less insurance coverage, but you had other people across the state who were going to be able to have um, more insurance coverage. So basically, you had a discrimination issue because you had people who were. What you call redlining? Well, you were, well, it's red, well not, it's not just redlining, which is true, but it's also because people of color would have less coverage than in the, in the city than people who were white would have more coverage because it's more affordable for them to have it. But the problem was, is that the system itself was unsustainable, was unsustainable. And so that those costs, because the medical costs were growing at such an exponential rate, that it was starting to affect people in the suburbs. And so that's why we had the impetus to be able to pass this law. So as long as it was something that was just keep maintaining and containing the city, it was like you just you could just deny that happening. And that comes from, you know, Jim Crow and segregation and red line like you talked about earlier and all of that. But once it started spreading out to the rest of the state, that's when you started having problems. Now look again, auto insurance companies can deny certain claims now. They tell you that they have to pay all of them. That's not true. They can deny certain claims. They can deny partial claims as well. There's some claims that, like I said earlier, they just don't pay at all. So they have things in place to be able to deal with that. You were reimbursed up to a certain percentage. Uh, I forgot what the number is now, but you were reimbursed up to a certain point with the Michigan Catastrophic Claims Association. So after you spent a certain amount of money, you got that money reimbursed back to you. Okay? So you had that that you were dealing with in terms of the money reimbursement that you were receiving. The problem, though, was that we didn't have transparency on the Michigan Cash Strong Claims Association. So the Michigan Cash Strong Claims Association, that money that everybody has to pay into, mm -hmm. that's determined by the top five auto insurance premium writers in the country. In the state, excuse me, in the country. In the state, okay? And it's not open to the public. So you got to pay money into a system, but you can't see where that money goes or what they do with it or why they're raising rates in order to pay for these claims. So transparency issue. You don't have a deficiency standard, okay, that says that, that most of the money that we have is gonna go towards actually providing the service. It's not gonna go towards, you know, um, 
new furniture or towards buildings or towards um, executive bonuses or golden parachute, things of that nature. It's going to go towards actually providing insurance like they have in California. They don't have that. So these are things that we should have had happen that we just didn't at that particular time. And so I think now we have some reforms, but they've gotten ways around doing around, around it. So we'll have to wait and see what happens. Hopefully people will receive savings with we'll wait and see. The, the last thing on this insurance, I noticed um, the cost of certain health services such as MRIs. Right. Were greatly inflated if the auto insurance had to pay for it, than if your Blue Cross Blue Shield. Absolutely, had to pay for it. absolutely. So, even though many people had that too, and that's why we need a fraud bureau as well to be able to deal with that. That's why I that, that, need that's, that's where I'm bureau. going because that's because a lot of people will say that the black people in Detroit are being charged exorbitantly, mm-hmm. not because they're black. But because they indulge, they're indulging in fraudulent activity, false claims, so on and so forth. Right. Saying there was a, too many of them, right? Right. I'm not going to say that's true or false. I'm right. going to say that if that's going on, why, why are no, why is no one going after the doctors? Well, I think, the, you know, yeah. the doctors have a license. They have a lot to lose. If people right. are making false claims. This couldn't go on right. if the chiropractors and the doctors and the lawyers and everybody else weren't involved. But no one is targeting them, nor are we focusing on them. Well, that's what I'm saying. I'm saying I think that's what the insurance fraud bureau would do as well. Yeah. If you do have that. Yeah. We, <laughs> like you said. I hear nobody, nobody talks about that. Right. Like you said, like you said, if you do have that, I think that's what you have that for. I also introduced legislation to pass that as well. Yeah. But it didn't go through. Right. I think that's and I think they have that in this case as well. I'm not sure. But yeah, I but that that's that if that is happening, that is true. You always need look, you always need more oversight. Transparency is the best sunshine. So you always need more oversight over that. You always need people being held accountable and you didn't have that. Listen, I'm from New York. And they should be elected too, like it is in California. I'm from New York. New York has no fall insurance like Michigan. Yeah. Right? Same thing. Um, in the 90s, I don't know what's going on now, but in the 90s, you had organizations, people who would recruit drivers to have accidents. And then they would have chiropractors, doctors, everybody, and they, they overcharged the insurance companies. And in New York, a lot of people, because you know poor people, you'd entice them and they would do it. Right. But they didn't make anything compared to those doctors. And again, this is not to uh, stereotype stereotype anyone. But I know for a fact, primarily, it was Russians doing this in New York, right? And I'm not saying they're the only ones. But in New York, it was Russians. And when you hear about these cases of fraud, everyone is so comfortable just identifying the black participants, right, you know, but black people aren't that high in the pecking order of anything to defraud anybody of billions of dollars. Right. We're, we're, low, we're usually low-hanging fruit right. in any criminal food chain. As a matter of fact, when it comes to crime, my thinking is when we get involved, it means it's time for somebody to go to jail, and it's usually going to be us. Yeah, you, you you know what I mean. But but well, anyway, did the crime or not? You know, but anyway, move, moving right along. So the pilot program, the the pilot school for your STEM program is at Martin Luther King. Right. And um, I I, I know you want to um. Mention people like Mr. Fitz and who is the principal over there? Uh, Miss Jenkins. Miss Jenkins. Miss Jenkins and Mr. Fitz. Yes, those are people who um, have done um, a lot of great things with the community. Done a lot of great things um, with the city for a very long time, and so these are people who we really felt were best right here in Kansas Central, located on the east side, mm-hmm. but also because these are the people who are really helping our teachers. 
I'm really helping our kids become what they need to become. And I feel this day that the best of the best right here. And, and they were the first to want to collaborate with they you. They were the one of the first to welcome me in with open arms, want to collaborate. Them. I knew them already. I had given them tributes previously. So, uh, yeah. So we definitely want to thank uh, Ms. Jenkins and Mr. We, Fitz. We want to thank Mr. Fitz and Jenkins. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And hopefully we'll get some more. Oh, oh we're going to get some more. Yeah. No, 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 no doubt about it. Um, I, I, I want to congratulate you on the first annual July 4th cookout yeah, that you good. had yesterday. It was good. Oh, man. It was uh, good. We went and fed the hungry. Over, we did. Over on the east side of the homeless we shelter did. after that. And we fed people at the park, and then we went and fed the hungry. And then today you had a very, very eye-opening 5K where people in the community uh, were acknowledging your Yeah, you know, it was really good to have I, a little 5K. Right I, I like, you know, it, the contrast between what people who are higher up in society, yeah. how they react to you and how people on the street react to you. Yeah. I, I think it's a good reason for them to be intimidated by you. Yeah. I do. Yeah. Because when you walk around and I walk with you, I see how the people on the street react to you. Right. So those people who are in positions, their numbers are small. Mm -hmm. All you need are the people behind you. Well, the power of the people is always stronger than the people in power. So. Okay. There yeah. you go. Now, yeah. one last thing. Politically. Yeah. Anything on the horizon for you, Cole? Oh, I'm definitely, oh, I'm definitely looking at something. I'm gonna come back here and let everybody know when I'm running and when that time is. I'll give you the exclusive of what I'm doing. How okay, I'm doing it, no doubt, my man. Most definitely, my man. But Cole, y'all, it's a pleasure interviewing you, working with you, and most importantly, knowing you. I thank you so much, my man. All thank right. you. Appreciate okay. you, brother.